Hey everybody, glad you could be with us today. So the series we're in is called Future You, and we're just asking the simple question, who will we be in a few years from now if we continue our present course? And who do we want to be in a few years, you know, three, five, ten years from now? So where's our momentum taking us, and do we like that destination? Because now's the time to get off the train if we don't like where it's going. So instead of the usual kind of New Year's resolutions where we're picking something bigger, we're going to go a little bit deeper. And the, the title of this message is In Lieu of Crisis. And we'll talk about what that means in a bit. But we're going to start in 1 Kings 19. And there we find the story of Elisha. And Elisha would, this is the Elisha who would eventually become a prophet because God told Elijah in advance who was going to replace him. Elijah was this big-time miracle-working prophet. Elijah is this fiery figure who, alongside Moses, really represents the office of prophet. And so Elijah's are a hard set of shoes to fill. But that's what's going to happen with Elisha. Now, it was a confusing way for God to do that because their names sound so similar. You had to go and pick Elisha to replace Elijah. It couldn't be something, you know, somebody with literally any other name. Larry or Travis. No, it had to be Elisha. But what we're going to see is Elijah seeking out Elisha so that he can let him know that he's going to one day be a prophet. So let's start here. So he, that's Elijah, verse 19, departed from there and found Elisha. And so now you're probably wondering who his dad is. So luckily, son of Shaphat, like I don't feel comfortable studying him if I can't know who his dad is. So the text was like, he's fought. And Elisha, when he got found, was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. Now, if if you weren't impressed by that, you should be. Because he just we just found out he is enormously wealthy. Enormously wealthy. You see, an, an oxen in that day would have been like the equivalent of like an expensive John Deere tractor. And he has 12 pairs of these. It means he has 24 of these expensive, fancy pieces of farming equipment. So, so Shaphat Farms has to own a huge amount of land to necessitate 24 of these things. So to have one would have been a big deal on that day. He's got a, a fleet or a herd rather. And so, so that means that Shaphat Farms was the place to be. Shaphat Farming Incorporated, Shaphat and Sons, Shaphat Enterprises, whatever they're calling it is a big deal. And Elisha's going to be in charge of that one day. And that's a big deal. That's huge. That's a huge responsibility. And it's a big calling. And many of you will be called to be leaders in industry, in business, and be successful and produce wealth. Not just for yourselves as an end, but as a way to bless many people and do a great deal of good. And I think some of you, even now, the seeds are going to be planted so that future you could be in a completely different place when it comes to the wealth you can produce, and the good that you can do through that. So the text continues. Then Elijah passed by him, and look at this, threw his mantle on him. So that's weird. Just walks by him and... And we have no idea whether he's ever met the guy before, but Elisha would have known about Elijah. He was... He would have known that Elijah is this larger than life. He's the guy who one time said... It's not going to rain until I say it will. And Elisha's just plowing, just another day. And all of a sudden, Elijah just appears out of nowhere with a crazy look in his eye, I'm guessing. And as he approaches him, Elijah starts 
taking off his jacket super slowly. And Elisha's like, that's strange. And Elijah runs up behind him and throws his jacket over Elisha's shoulders and walks away. But what we know is that this is a symbolic gesture. He was offering him the chance to be under his authority and to be his pupil. And Elisha knew full well what was being offered. And that's why the text says, verse 20, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And he would have, of course, handed his mantle back, his cloak back. He realizes he doesn't, he doesn't get it yet. That was just a ceremony. It was symbolism. And he said, please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. So he knew what was happening. Please let me kiss my mom and dad, and then let's do this thing. You realize what he's walking away from, right? He's walking away from Shafat Enterprises. This is kissing the life he knew and the future that was before him goodbye to follow Elijah, whose life was impressive, right? I'll give you that, but it was treacherous. Elijah, he called down fire from heaven, but also there were years of hardship where at one point he was hanging out by a brook and he was in such a bad spot that God had to feed him by ravens, raven food delivery service twice a day. They showed up and brought him, brought food to him. Which I'm sure the first day he was like, what, in, what is happening? What in the world? Is that bird carrying a Nutrigrain bar? And then from there he goes and he stays with this widow of Zarephath, which was in a territory of the people who he had offended and the God that he had insulted. So when we meet the widow, she's so emaciated, she looks like she's about to starve to death. And then she in fact tells him, I'm actually planning on dying later. I'm going to eat one last meal. And then it's over. He's like, okay, awesome. First, make me some pancakes. And he ends up staying with her through the entire famine, and God provides enough for both of them. But Elisha knows full well that that's what he's embracing. A life where God's going to use him dramatically, but hardship and difficulty and opposition, just not knowing from day to day what is even going to happen is going to be the rule of his life. And that's what he just accepted. So Elijah responds and says back, go back again for what have I done to you? In other words, yeah, kiss your mom and dad, but just make sure you count the cost. Make sure you understand what you're getting into here. You're embracing a life where you're not in control. Make sure you understand that full well. Verse 21, Elisha turned back from him and obviously he's done saying goodbye. He took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. You see what's happening here? In answer to Elijah's question, do you really mean to follow me? Elisha turned around and killed these animals and made a bonfire and ate what just a moment before represented his life. Pretty strong move. So he follows Elijah, and he becomes a servant. So, get this. 18 years passes. 18 long years go by, and we get one detail. One detail of that 18-year-long period where he's Elijah's servant. You ready for it? 2 Kings 3.11. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. And that's it. That's all we get for 18 years as Elijah's servant. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. His function was that of one who provides the hand sanitizer. After the meet and greet where Elijah shook all the hands, he would come over 
and Elisha would. That was his life, 18 years. Back in the fanny pack, and on they would go to the next assignment. That was his only job that we know of, 18 years of his life. He could have been somebody. He was somebody. How many times during those 18 years do you think he thought back of, of how his life was on Shaphat Farms and Cringe? We don't hear of a sermon. There's no miracles. He just merely had a role in the background supporting the ministry that made what Elijah did possible. Then finally, the details start to flow a little bit about Elisha's life. As Elijah's life was nearing its conclusion. See, God told Elijah in advance, you're about to be done here on this earth. And he let Elisha know it's, it's about to end. It's all coming to a conclusion here. So they began to walk to a solitary place where he was going to go to heaven. And they had a, to cross a river first. And they were traveling. They came to a river and Elijah stopped at the river's edge. Elijah looked at it, took his jacket off, rolled it up. The mantle that he had put on Elisha. And he smacked the edge of the river with his jacket. So this is just the Bible. You got to read this thing. He hits the river with his jacket and the river divides in half. And then it says in, in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9, And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what may I do for you before I am taken away from you. So that's nice. Hey, you've been a good servant these 18 years. Anything I can do for you before I die. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. I love that request. And I hope that's what's in your spirit, in your prayer. I hope as you think of the, the great things that God has done in other people's lives and in the world and in your life, I hope your request facing the future is, God, do twice as much in the coming days. I hope that's what you're praying over your kids. I hope that's what you're praying over your, your grandkids. I hope you're saying, God, you've done great things before, but double it. I hope that when you think about our church and all of that's come before us, I hope you're saying, God, a double portion in the coming days. And far from being offended by that, that's, that's God's heart all along. He wants to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you can ever ask or think or imagine. I think the problem of praying small prayers is that you might just get what you asked for instead of what God wanted you to have all along. So pray big, bold prayers. So Elijah considers what Elisha asked for, a double portion, and look at this response. He says, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. So nothing's ever simple with this guy, is it? In a minute, I'm going to go to heaven, and if you see when it happens, then you will get what you asked for. You know, from that moment, Elisha doesn't blink one single time, right? Elijah's not vanishing into the bushes and dying on my watch. But God had something much weirder in store for Elijah than dying like an ordinary person. Oh no, there would be no dying for him. Because as the text continues, it says, Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire. And separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Of course he did. Of course he did. That's how I want to go too. I've requested that from God. You all can die in your sleep. I want a fiery chariot and a whirlwind. He hasn't confirmed it with me yet, but I think it's a go. So we know Elijah was just messing with him, because how could you miss that? 
You can't really miss something like that. A whirlwind and a bunch of horses and the chariot. And the fact that the chariots and the horses are they're on fire. So this is an interesting day for Elisha. Then the Bible says, And Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them into two pieces. Then look at this. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. So imagine this. He's watching this whirlwind go by and the horses shoot off into the sky. Air Horse One, if you will. That's stupid. But then all of a sudden, out of the whirlwind comes what? Elijah's mantle. Comes floating back down to him. But look at this. This is really funny to me. He took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that. And Elisha crossed over. Okay, so what does this have to do with future you? So this story has three movements, and I believe this story has much to speak to our lives as we seek to get where we want to go in the next few years. So what do you mean? Well, I call this message in lieu of crisis. Why? Because a crisis is an event that, if you think about it, proves we are all capable of change. I can never change. I can never do that. Well, if you had to, you'll find a way. Why do moms pick up cars to get their kids out? They had to. What if you had to come up with a ransom? I read this book a while back by an FBI negotiator who's, who's talking about the different situations where families had to come up with money. Why? They had to. What could you do if you had to do it? I can never fast. I get too hungry. If you had to, if your car broke down in the woods and you were stranded for weeks, you could. When you have to, you're capable of change. But how do we change in lieu of crisis? I think we have to come to a place where we can generate an internal crisis even when we don't have the luxury of an external one. Tony Robbins put it this way. He said, change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. Change hurts. And so that's why we don't like it. Because fasting's hard. And so is saving. So is lifting things that are heavy. And we could do it if there was a crisis. But how do we generate the crisis? Because I don't think that staging external crises is the way to go, right? I get someone to sabotage my car so that it breaks down in the woods so that I can fast. That's not realistic moving forward. But if you can generate an internal crisis because you think about the pain of staying where you are, as opposed to whatever pain that's involved in getting to where you want to go, then we can see change and transformation. And I see in the scripture that we read three ideas that will help us. First, it's going to take drastic action. Drastic action to get where we want to be. Elisha is demonstrating drastic action when he chooses to barbecue his oxen, and eat with his friends. That's drastic. That is, burn the ships. We will die or we will succeed, but there is no retreat. Are you drastic in the action you're taking for future you? And why is the drastic action so necessary at the beginning? It's that, because it's that first domino. If you heard last week's message, it's, the, it's what starts the momentum of compound interest of change in your life. But it's drastic to knock something over. 
that domino over. Something's got to light the fuse. It's going to take a spark to get that fire going. It's hard but necessary to overcome inertia. Sir Isaac Newton, first law of motion. Objects will remain at rest or in a uniform motion in a straight line unless compelled to change its state by the action of an external force. The point is everything in the universe wants to keep doing whatever it's doing. It doesn't want to change. Everything is resistant to a change of state. That's why our default is to stay where we are. Our default thing is to not move. It's to not change. And that's why it's so difficult to change your life. Because all the energy you apply to change at the beginning gets spent just overcoming inertia. And you're not able to use any of it to build up speed. That's why God has us do drastic things sometimes. That's why baptism is so important. It's a drastic thing to get in that water and get dunked. To get out and say to the whole world, I am soaking wet and I'm saved. It's a drastic action. That's why fasting is so drastic. I'm going to not eat for a while. Why? I want to hear from heaven. It's a, it's a drastic action. It's drastic to say, here's a line. No more. The time for half measures is over. Otherwise, future you is an older version of who you are right now, but exaggerated. So first, drastic action. Then there's a second thing I see in Elisha's story, which is steady progression. Steady progression. Slow and steady. 18 years. What is he doing? Pouring water. Pouring water. 18 years. Drastic action tips over our first domino. But then what do we need? Just consistent, consistent consistency. Doesn't look like much happened. Just consistent, pouring water, pouring water, pouring water. Epictetus, the Greek philosopher, put it this way. No great thing is created suddenly any more than a bunch of grapes or a fig. If you tell me that you desire a fig, I answer you there must be time. Let it blossom, then bear fruit, then ripen. You want the processes that God put in place of slow and steady to win that race. Because God always works in sowing and reaping in seasons. But think of what could happen in three to five years from now. To modernize it a little bit, Darren Hardy in his book, The Compound Effect, put it this way. He said, it's time someone told it to you straight. You've been bamboozled for too long. There's no magic bullet, secret formula, or quick fix. You don't make 200 grand a year spending two hours a day on the internet. Lose 30 pounds in a week, rub 20 years off your face with a cream, fix your love life with a pill, or find lasting success with any other scheme that's too good to be true. It'd be great if you could buy your success, fame, self-esteem, good relationships, and health and well-being in a nicely clamshell package at the local Walmart, but that's not how it works. Keep sowing, keep watering, keep dreaming, keep planted. Small groups, life decisions, Bible, Jesus, prayer, save money, exercise, the right choices, sharing life, day in, day out, serving others, planted in the house of God. It takes the right things over time to get where we want to be. And there's a third idea. And the third idea is when there's been drastic action followed by a steady progression, you can then enjoy momentum. Enjoy momentum. Isn't it interesting the way that Elisha eventually comes to a place where, slowly and steadily, he's been filling up his life with these small decisions and then eventually comes to this place of momentum. Momentum. I love it so much. Why? Because inertia is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Newton said things that are at rest stay at rest. What was the second part? But objects in motion stay in motion. So drastic action 
to get moving, followed by compounded decision-making to steer us, eventually leads us to a pretty great place. You know, the space shuttle uses more fuel in taking off than it does in the rest of the flight put together, because it's just got to break free from what's holding it to being an object at rest. But then eventually it becomes an object in motion and stays in motion. And it's hard to get off the ground, yeah. It's difficult to do drastic action. And the steady progression can be uncomfortable, but eventually you come to a place where the, the right things have been set in place and just continue. Amen. All right, let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for the methods and the processes of change and transformation that you put in place. We pray that we might follow you and learn your ways. Speak to us, Lord. Open our hearts and our spirits to any areas that need change. Help us, Lord. Lead us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. 